Hi there. My name is Amelia from Amelia Botanica, and I am so ready to take you on this journey to find yourself, be the most vibrant you can be, and take your existence to that next level. I'm a clinical naturopath and trauma-informed EFT tapping practitioner, and I'm your host, ready to guide you through life's health journeys. This podcast is going to allow you to strip away all the confusion and step into your best self, equipped with confidence, self-advocacy, and motivation to drive your wellness to that next level of radiance. So join me weekly in this collective for this beautiful sharing of information. Each week, I will either interview amazing practitioners, clients, or healers from all different realms of healthcare, or move into a solo episode where I'll share more about my own health experience and my favorite tips to make you the most vibrant you can be. We discuss how these amazing people move their stories from pain to power. I can't wait to join you on this amazing journey. Hello and welcome to the Amelia Botanica podcast from pain to power. Today we have leading habit researcher Dr. Gina Cleo on the podcast and she reveals so many amazing things about habits and breakthroughs in behavioral science that will really help you uncover how your brain works and how to rewire to make instant and lasting change in your life. In the episode we talk all things neuroscience between behind habits. We speak about her step-by-step process to set new habits, and it's just a really amazing one to listen to on the 1st of January or any time of the year. But I wanted to put this out on the 1st of Jan because I think it's an amazing episode to listen to if you're feeling unsure about how to create new habits and how to really support yourself in the new year. So I hope you love this podcast episode. Dr. Gina Cleo is an absolutely wonderful human, so make sure you follow her and I'll put all of her details in the show notes and her amazing book, The Habit Revolution, is out now. So I'll also put those links there. Have a great day. Happy New Year. And I hope you're all really, really well. Today, we have the most amazing human on, Dr. Gina Cleo. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, Amelia. Great to be here. Thank you. Oh, it's so exciting. So I'd love to ask you straight off the bat, what makes you feel powerful? Ooh, I would say there's a few things that make me feel powerful. One of the main ones is when I'm able to see change taking place in my life Mm. around something that I've intentionally worked on changing. Like when I'm like, oh, wow, I don't feel like that anymore around this thing. Or I've been able to really get through this negative thought about this or this anxious trigger about something. When I really see those changes happen. I'm like, yes, I can change my brain and I can make things happen. And I feel really empowered by that. Mm -hmm. I also really love when I'm able to say no to things that I might want to do, but aren't serving me. So when I can say no to like opportunities or no to picking up my phone too much, or, you know, those kinds of things, I'm like, I feel like I'm in my power and that feels really good. Amazing. And, you know, today we'll get into all of the juicy details about how that came about, but it's just so exciting to have you on. So I'd love to just hear more about you and how you've moved your pain to power and just your story, how you've gotten here and what you do. So I'm a habit change expert and there aren't very many of us in the world. So it's something that I'm very, very fortunate to have stumbled into. I started my career as a dietitian and I I loved being able to help people, you know, find their confidence and change their lifestyles. But I found that I was only really able to help people short term and I wanted more answers around sustainable change and creating long-term outcomes. So I did a PhD in habit change and 
it has completely changed my life. So I'm now a behavioral scientist. I work in all sorts of behavior change, but mainly in, in the wellness space. So with uh, like eating and exercise and movement, meditation, sleep habits, technology, relationships, money, like all the things. Um, I run online courses. So for people who want to become habit practitioners, certified habit practitioners, and also for everyday people that want to learn more about their habits, I've written a book called The Habit Revolution, and oh, I'm like the biggest habit nerd ever. I mean, habits are both my my career, but also my passion and my hobby. I'm that weird person sitting on the beach with a neuroscience textbook when everyone else is reading novels. <laughs> I love that. I love That's that. what I do, yeah. <laughs> no, it's fantastic, and I feel like, you know, your work as we'll speak about today, is quite revolutionary. So the book is called The Habit Revolution, and I think that is perfectly named because <laughs> it's something I think there's a lot of information out there, how to stick to your habits and, you know, the 2024 stick to your new habits kind of work coming out on Instagram. But I think yeah. you, you know, you have that neuroscience behind it and actually the fact of how to get to A from A to B. So I think, you know, I'm really excited to talk about that more today. But before we get there, I'd love to chat to you about, you know, how you've personally changed your pain to power. And there was an amazing chapter in your book, which wasn't popped in the book, but, you know, reading through it was an incredible story. So if you're comfortable to share more about that, um, you know, how you turned your trauma with habits. Yeah, for sure. So a few years ago, um, actually, we'll start, let's start at the top. So <laughs> <laughs> About, it was actually 10 years ago, I met the man of my dreams or the guy that I thought was the man of my dreams. And he was, you know, he ticked all the boxes and he was beautiful and gentle and kind. And we were together for six years and then we got married. And six months into our marriage, I discovered that he had this whole double life. He was cheating on me. He was going to brothels and hiring uh, sex workers and escorts and he had a tender account and this just completely took me by surprise you know I knew that our relationship in the last sort of year together was different I knew that something was critically different but he would say to me oh I feel like I've got depression you know it was through COVID I've got depression my work's changing I can't see my family I'm socially isolated. There was all these things which then made sense. So when he was behaving sort of odd or when I felt disconnected, I could attribute everything to what he was saying. Never, ever, ever did it cross my mind that he could be doing this. And he was very affirming of the relationship. You know, every day is, I love you so much. I can't wait to come home to you. You're so beautiful. Like you're the best wife in the world. I'd get totally love bombed. But at the time, it made me feel really secure. And then one day I was in the kitchen, I was baking some banana bread and I wanted to check the recipe. His computer was sitting on the kitchen bench. So I just like flicked it open to look at the recipe. And as I did that, his iMessages, which were attached to his computer, were popping up. And I was reading through a live text message exchange that he was having with a sex worker he was about to meet with. And she was sending him photos. He was commenting on them. They talked about money and location and what they're going to do. And he said, I'm five minutes away. And I, 
I had a complete panic response, like a total trauma response. I hyperventilated, I fainted, and my beautiful dog, Macy Gray, broke the door and came in and sort of woke me up. Yeah. And as soon as I woke back up, I checked for more messages to see if this was just a one-off or what was going on. And I found hundreds more. I found lots more photos and text messages. And, you know, he would go out to a local brothel in his lunch break at work. And so, you know, it, to me, he was just at work for the day, but he worked by himself a lot of the time and had, you know, ultimate freedom. So he, I messaged him. Oh, sorry. I actually just waited for him to come home. I wanted to message him, but I took screenshots of everything. I sent it all to my mom and I just said to her, just, I need you to hold on to these for now. I, I don't really know what's happening. And he came home and I just sat very calmly because I thought if I actually screamed my head off, which is what I want to do, he will just deny everything and run away. So I just very calmly said to him, do you have anything you need to tell me? And he said no and continued to deny, even after I showed him that I'd seen the photos and messages, <laughs> continued to deny and, and like share all these stories. Like, I love you too much to do that. I thought about it and I was just outside and then I came straight home and I'm like, you've been going just outside for months. Like how, like this makes no sense to me. My brain really wanted to believe him. I was madly in love with this guy. Like we were just about to try for a baby. We'd bought the dream house. We had our dream careers, the dream lifestyle. And it made no sense to me why he'd want to shatter that. But I, I obviously, I, I went through this like weird stage of sort of believing him, but not believing him. And I felt like my mind cracked. My mind was like, if you were so wrong, you're so wrong about this Gina. Like they, he is not this beautiful, gentle, kind angel. You mm. thought he, this man is living in your house. You are a behavioral scientist and you didn't pick this up. What else are you wrong about? Mm. And it was like, nothing was certain. Nothing was safe. Nothing was normal. And I didn't even know if my parents were my parents. I didn't know if brushing my teeth was a good idea. I didn't know if we really drive on the left-hand side of the road in Australia. Like my brain cracked and I was like a vegetable. I was in bed for days. I didn't know what to do with myself. I was in a complete panic. He ended up just packing his bags and saying, I'm not worthy of being in the same room as you and left. And wow. that was it. Yeah. So wild. Um, how I turned my pain, which was awful, to power was, firstly, I'm really stubborn. So I was like, all right, he's taken enough of my life, you know, years of my life and a lot of that, you know, really fertile time as well. And I was determined not to let it continue, you know, doing damage because I became triggered by everything. Oh my gosh. Like, by black cars, because he drove a black car, the smell of coffee, because that's how we'd start our day together. Um, Asian women, because they were the ones that he would select. So whenever I'd see someone of that nationality, I would totally panic because my brain would be like, what if that's one of them? Like, even though it totally wouldn't have been, but it could have been like, I don't know. White Sheridan sheets triggered me. And I would be getting these like 
panic attacks, mm. which is wild because I had never experienced depression or anxiety before. I didn't know what was happening in my body. So I developed ag agoraphobia, which is a fear of leaving my own house. And I just thought, I can't, I can't do this. You know, I was the head of student well-being at, at Bond University. It was a beautiful private university in the med medical faculty. I had a really like great job and I was running my own business, which was global and it was growing. And I went from this sort of power woman to this little vegetable who I couldn't even go out to my letterbox terrified to go out there because the triggers were everywhere and I didn't know when they would come or how bad it would hit mm. so I decided to do some really intense exposure therapy and I sort of put all my work on hold for a couple of months and I went into like full-time therapy <laughs> and that helped me to just to be able to sort of get my back on my feet into my like not being terrified essentially of even just driving my car and then I started to put all my neuroscience knowledge and my habit change knowledge into practice because I remember thinking my brain is now associating all these things with a panic response. And I believe in the power of neuroplasticity, you know, the ability to change our brain. So if I can't do this, I'm quitting habits because then I know that, it, you know, there's no <laughs> point in doing this work. I was like, okay, this is the ultimate test. And so I started first day with just brushing my teeth. I was like, today I'm just going to brush my teeth and that's all I'm going to do. And I would do that and I'd spend the rest of the day in bed. Then the next day I'd brush my teeth again and then I'd have a shower. And I recognized that brushing my teeth the second day was a bit easier than it was the first day. And I was like, okay, like I'm already noticing change. So this is good. And I would just layer one habit on another. And it was a process of two steps forward, one step back. But I eventually was able to apply all this knowledge of starting small and being consistent and using a habit tracker and self-compassion into getting back to not just where I was, but an even more a, a healthier place, both physically and mentally than I was before this trauma had happened. Mm. Wow. Wow, I'm speechless. That it's a it's a huge thank you so much for sharing your story because mm. I'm sure a lot of people listening can completely empathize with that. And you know, that's obviously an extreme, but you know, there's a lot of situations that you know my clients and people I hear um are in similar conditions and situations. So thank you so much. Mm. It's an amazing and I love in your book how you spoke about just one habit at a time, as you just said, you know, brushing your teeth, cooking a meal, and then you tried the gym and then you were back in bed and then you tried again. And I think but making it into bite-sized chunks for people yeah. is really amazing because, you know, a lot of the time people say, you know, I want to lose 30 kilos and I want to do that overnight, but then not looking at the little tiny crumbs that they have to take each day yeah. to get there. And so for you to share that, from your place is is really amazing um oh, and I'd love to hear more about your book The Habit Revolution and how it was born yeah so it's funny because after I did my PhD you know it's a hundred thousand words it's a big thesis it took three or four years to do I was like my writing career is done like I am so <laughs> done with writing yeah I'm done and then my agent has consistently been like, you have a book in you. You need to write a book about habits. There's, there are books on the market about habits, but they're not evidence-based. 
Oh, some of them are, but the, the, I guess the more recent popular ones are not evidence-based, you know, the most popular ones written by a journalist who unfortunately misinterprets a lot of the science, therefore making making the advice really impractical and I guess not meaningful for a lot of people. And so I was actually contacted by a book publisher around the time this whole trauma thing happened. And I was like, I am not in a creative space. Like if you guys are still interested in a year's time, come back to me. And I just thought if they, there's no way they're going to come back. Like there's going to be someone else writing a book on something. They'll forget. They'll totally forget. But a year to the dot, they came back and they said, we've had so many requests for habit, like habit books, but we want you to write the book because you're the only person with a PhD in this space. And we would love your voice in this in this area and I was like all right I guess I'm summoned now (laughs) I guess I'm picking my pen back up and writing again but it was a much more enjoyable experience than I was expecting I love sharing the habit change content because it truly transforms people's lives and it's been such a rewarding experience you know even running courses and seeing how people have changed their lives is amazing and to be able to put it in a book that's you know available globally is super exciting. So that's how the book came about. Oh, it's amazing. And it's coming out in January. So I'll link in the show notes. Everyone has to go buy it. Um, (laughs) And that's just, yeah, such a wonderful, you know, you've completely used your pain and your incredible brain to create something that's power for other people to change their life. So I'd love to hear more about the neuroscience behind habits. Yeah. So, and I guess that that's this neuroplasticity piece, you know, the neuroscience behind habits is that our brain is constantly changing. Mm -hmm. It's either moving us towards something that we want to achieve or away from it. And it's moving us in the direction that we're repeating. So if you're someone who gets up every day and you say, check your phone first thing in the morning, you're embedding that habit in your life. You're making it stronger the more you do it. In the same way, if you're someone who gets up and does some meditation or a workout, that Mm -hmm. becomes the habit that you're rewiring and changing. You know, we're not stuck with our brains. We all have the power to rewire and to change our neurons and our connections at any stage in life, no matter how old you are, how long you've been doing a habit for, the neuroscience shows that we are our brain is super dynamic and it's constantly changing. There are two terms I really love in neuroscience. And one of them is synaptic strengthening and synaptic pruning. And synaptic strengthening is this idea that the more we repeat something in the same place or the same time, the stronger that habit becomes in our brain. Mm -hmm. And therefore the more embedded the habit is in our life. And then synaptic pruning, which is probably one of my favorite words, like of all time. (laughs) Synaptic pruning. I literally imagine like my brain with little like succotors, like pruning. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Synaptic pruning basically means the less we do a habit, our, our brain goes, well, I'm not using these neural connections anymore. I need to make space for new ones. So I'm going to get these out of my life. And it literally prunes away old or unused neural connections, which are our unwanted habits or old habits. So the less we do something, the weaker those neural connections become until eventually our brain just gets rid of them. And that's the neuroscience of habits is that we are so in control and we have the power to rewire our brain at like every day. So yeah, that's the neuroscience. It's fascinating. 
Yeah, that is fascinating. And I love how you made it, you know, in human language, not super science. <laughs> but, you know, I think even just saying that, that quick little description will make people feel so empowered because I hear every day in clinic, oh, I could never, oh, I would never, I couldn't give this up or I would never be able to hit that goal. And mm. for us to actually hear, no, the science is, if you put your mind to it, you can do it and you can get from yeah. A to B. So that's just amazing. So to form a habit or to release something you want to let go of, is there generally like a time frame for that? A lot of people have heard that it takes 21 days to create a new habit. That is a total myth. <laughs> there is no scientific evidence to show that it takes 21 days. It's actually from 21 days to up to a year, basically, to create a new habit. And that is going to depend on a whole range of things, like how consistent you are with your habit. You know, the more you do it, the stronger the habit will become, and then the quicker it's going to develop in your life. Some people are more habitual than others. Like I am not a very habitual person, which is very ironic for a habit researcher. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> My husband, on the other hand, is so, by the way, I've been remarried. I'm not married to the same guy, obviously. <laughs> yeah, had to clarify that one. I eloped recently in Mexico, actually. But yeah. my husband is so habitual, like loves routine, thrives in the consistency of day in, day out doing similar things. He develops habits much quicker than I do, but mm -hmm. I break habits much quicker than he does. So that's going to also depend on, you know, your temperament makes a big deal. Also, mm -hmm. how stressed you are. The more stressed you are, the less neuroplasticity power, I guess, our brain is able to exert because it's using energy to self-preserve because you're in this fight or flight mode. So more stress management techniques equals better habits, essentially. And the last thing would be how intentional or how much you want it. You know, it the stronger the intention that you have to make a change, the mm -hmm. quicker that change will happen. If you're kind of like, oh, yeah, I kind of want to do it, it's not going to be very quick. It's not going to be a quick process. And I meet a lot of people who try to change habits because they think it's a good idea and not actually because they value that thing. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't really work as much as yeah. I really, really want to change this because I care so much about it because it aligns with my values and my identity. That is going to be a total game changer. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I love in the book how, and we can talk about this, how you speak about, you know, the why. So rather than just being like, oh, I want to, you know, quit sugar in 2024. It's like, why do I have a mm. sugar addiction? What's the emotion yeah. behind it? And what do I need to do to actually change these things? So we'll definitely chat about that. But it is really interesting because a lot of people are like, yeah, you need three weeks and you'll be in the new habit of not being addicted to your phone. And I'm like, mm -hmm. <laughs> and I think, yeah. you know, it's nice put like a month dedication to something, you know, let's try for a month and see how you go. But you're right. It does take a lot longer to actually make the big change. Mm. Yeah. And I mean, if you're trying to change something really simple, like say you want to start to have a drink of water with your breakfast every day, that may take three weeks. But if you're trying to change a habit that's a bit more complex, that's going to take a bit longer because it's a it's a complex thing. And, you know, one of the studies that proves this is they looked at people who drank a glass of water and then the other group of people, they asked them to do 50 sit-ups or 50 push-ups, I think. Oh. Like it's going to take a lot longer to do 50 push-ups to a place where it's like totally automatic and subconscious and habitual because 
that's a complex behavior compared to just having a glass of water. Yeah, absolutely. And I actually want you to define what is a habit? <laughs> so a habit is a behavior that's been repeated over and over again in the same context and that's brought about by a trigger. So it's sort of a complex thing to describe, but if you just think of a habit as an automatic action that you do without thinking about, it would feel weird if you didn't do it. It's essentially something that's triggered by something in our environment. So like putting on your seatbelt is a habit and it's mm -hmm. only triggered when you sit in the car or brushing your teeth might be a habit, which is triggered by your morning or evening routine. Mm -hmm. So our habits are triggered by either internal or external environments. Mm -hmm. Amazing. And it's so interesting to think about all the little habits that I didn't know I had. Like I <laughs> always pick up my water bottle and if I don't have it, I'm like searching around for it. And you're right, yeah. the thing it's it's really fascinating what gets embedded in your neurons I guess yeah and we have so many like about 70% of everything we do every day is habitual that's our behaviors our thoughts our reactions our belief systems a lot of the time we think when we're making a decision we're going to weigh up the pros and cons we're going to decide what's going to be best for us but the reality is most <laughs> of the time we operate out of autopilot and it's the littlest things to the biggest things like how you dry yourself after a shower is the same every day most people eat the same breakfast we brush our teeth in the same sequence we will put on like our pants or shorts or whatever the same leg first before the other one i actually said to a client once i was like why don't you just try doing things differently? Because we were trying to like unpack some of his habits. And I was like, try like little things, like put your pants on the other leg first. And he did that and he toppled over and sprained his ankle. And he came back into the clinic on crutches <laughs> because his brain was literally like, oh, whoa, 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 we don't do things this way. Like we actually have to consciously think about this now. Mm. So yeah, our habits are really so pertinent in our life. Wow. So fascinating. Um, so tell us more about the recipe for creating habits. So in your book, you talk about the combi and yeah. I'd love you to run through that and an example of how that would work. Yeah, so the combi is actually, um, it's a beautiful theory that was created by a group of amazing researchers at the University College of London. And uh, that was pioneered by Professor Susan Mickey, who's someone I really look up to. And essentially what it is, it's, three ingredients that is needed to make any sort of change in our life. And the combi stands for capability, opportunity, and motivation. And then the B is like equals behavior. So the idea is that we need to have the capability to do something. We need the opportunity to do it. And we need the motivation or like the reason why behind us in order to drive that change. So capability could be like, let's say, let's say like, like, Flossing our teeth, for example. The capability is I have the knowledge to know what to do with brushing or with flossing my teeth. The opportunity is, will I have floss around? Like I could have all the knowledge and motivation in the world, but if I don't have floss, I'm not going to be able to floss. And then motivation is, okay, I think it's a pretty good idea to do this. And I, and I do want to do it because I think it's important for my health. You need those three ingredients to be able to make change. And what I often find is people are missing one of these. So I go through something called like a, a combi diagnosis where we unpack, hey, what is your capability like? What opportunities do you have? Do you have time to do this? Do you have resources to be able to enact this thing you want to do? 
And a lot of the times they're like, well, actually, no, I, I realize I don't have the equipment or whatever it is, even though, cause they're like, I'm super motivated and I don't know why I'm not doing it. And so it's these three things we have to have to be able to make change happen. And it just makes so much sense as well to think about your habits and perhaps your goals for 2024 or, you know, when you're looking at resetting something in your life, just to have that kind of, you know, plan moving forward rather than just trying to make the big statements. It's like, okay, these three things, they're in line. Now we can take action and it's actually going to work. Yeah, exactly. And it just, it's nice to break it down. And then it also gets rid of all our excuses because it's like, right, I have all the, I have all the ingredients here. Like I just need to take action. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it makes sense. I love it. (laughs) And so I love, again, in the book, you were talking about the why. So, you know, what do you think is the thought process behind that? You know, why do we need to look at why these behaviors are and how can we actually need to, you know, how can we actually make this change happen? Yeah, I mean, every habit we have in our life gives us some kind of reward, whether it's a good habit or a not so good habit. For example, you know, picking up our phone too much or scrolling too much, which is a really common unwanted habit, gives us a hit of dopamine. It makes us feel good in the moment. And so I think it's really important to know why we're doing something and acknowledge the reward behind it. Because just saying to ourselves, I'm not going to do that anymore. Well, that means now you've got less dopamine. It's not going to feel as good. You're not going to be as motivated. You have to know what something gives you so that you could potentially replace it with a healthier habit that's going to give you a similar reward. Mm -hmm. So that's why it's so good to know the, the why, the when am I doing this? Why, where am I when it's happening? Emotional eatings are really common and and a great example as well. Like, am I feeling lonely or bored or sad? So what I actually really need is true connection. What I really need is to be in nature or whatever it is. And that's such a powerful way to be able to make a meaningful change instead of like depending solely on our willpower, which isn't going to work long term because willpower is a fleeting resource. Yeah. And I think for a lot of people listening, that can be quite confronting, you know, connecting mm. to that why, especially if it's around, you know, overeating or that kind of binge eating picture, because a lot of people don't want to go there. And it's and it's really hard to bring up the gunk that is perhaps driving that habit, even though it's a negative yeah. habit. And so do you have any tips for people that are just like, oh, I don't want to go there? <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's hard to you know, I think confronting ourselves is one of the hardest things ever because we're looking at the ugliest parts of ourselves and we're having to admit to ourselves that things need to change in order for us to live our best life. And that's super hard. It's so easy to just sweep it under, I'm too busy or I'll do it later. I'll do it on Monday. I'll do it in the new year. When actually there's not going to be a sort of a motivation fairy that's going to slap you across the face in the new year. You're never going to be less busy. You're not going to be more motivated. You're not going to be more anything. Like it, it is what it is now. And unless we confront these things, it's not going to change. And so I think, I think the conversation really is if you want it bad enough, I think you'll, you'll do it. And maybe you can unpack it with a friend that you trust or with a psychologist or a coach. You don't have to sit there and do it yourself with your like journal if that makes you uncomfortable. Yes. So find what works for you. 
Mm-hmm. And yeah, finding your support network, someone or people that are going to bring you, you know, a little bit of regulation in your nervous system while you're unpacking this, because a lot of the time it can come from trauma and, you know, it can be like a simple habit that they don't even connect with that trauma. So again, yeah. finding someone that you really trust and knows what they're doing to help you unpack it is great. Yeah, thing. totally. And be gentle, you know, just I think just awareness in itself is so powerful. Don't think to yourself, oh, but if I find out what's going on in my head, that means I've got to make all these changes and I'm already overwhelmed as it is and I don't want to. You know, that's it's understandable to have those thoughts. I've certainly had them many times. But if I just say to myself, all I'm looking for is the awareness of why. Nothing has to change. I'm just curious, just staying curious. I find that I naturally and organically start to make changes just through having the awareness that's and it's gentle and it's kind and it's compassionate and it's very empowering yeah it absolutely is and that was another thing I loved in the book how you spoke about learning to sit with your discomforts that Mm. is huge learning that I think not a lot of us like to do but something I've really worked on this year when I felt an emotion or something coming up around a habit or you know something that I'm just used to doing I really just take a step back and I'm like, okay, Amelia, what is this stemming from? You know, as you said, Mm. why am I feeling this way and how can I actually address this in a positive way, perhaps instead of leaning to the chocolate bar or going on my phone and dissociating? So learning to sit with your discomforts is a massive one too. Yeah, and I think it's amazing that you've been able to work through that because it is hard. It's so uncomfortable. And there are so many things in our environment, in our current society, that make it really easy to dissociate. It's quick, it's cheap, it's accessible, it's it's abundant, and it's socially acceptable to, you know, jump on our phone or go and buy a block of chocolate or an ice cream container. Like, it's so easy to do that. And I think to do the opposite is amazing so yeah like I commend you for doing that I think it's phenomenal the reason that I (laughs) oh it's a I think it's a lifelong practice to be honest (laughs) the reason I wanted to put it in the book is because through my own I guess trauma journey I learned more and more that uh, unless I really sat with the discomfort it was never going to go away you know energy has to be shifted it has to move it's not it'll just stay inside you and manifest in different ways otherwise and I couldn't I couldn't let that happen so I, I got a hammock and I sit outside and whenever I'm feeling icky like I might sit in the hammock and put my phone away and just sit with myself and I probably resist the thoughts for a while and I'm like well I'm pretty bored here so I better just get on with it <laughs> and honestly it's never it's never been too much I've never regretted it I've never fallen in a heap with it and not been able to, you know, bring myself out of it in a fairly, you know, socially acceptable time frame. You know, I, I can always just get on with my life after doing it and I feel so much better. And I'm sure you've had a similar experience where you're like, I'm just lighter now. Yeah. Absolutely. And processing unresolved stuff in the body is really hard, but it doesn't have to be, you know, you're going and seeing a psychotherapist and all these things. Sometimes it is just about sitting in the hammock and having 10 minutes to yourself. And yes, it's boring and uncomfortable, but so important too. And we're just touching on, you know, how comfortable we live in modern society. 
Mm. Back to caveman days, they went days without food and water. They were constantly on the run. There was so much danger. And now we don't have that danger aspect. So our brain is just kind of like, oh, I'm lazy. And I think that manifests a lot of the time with, you know, maybe more negative habits forming too. Yeah, totally. I think self-indulgence is one of our our greatest comforts and probably our, our greatest sins, I would say, in the modern world. And not having those things, you know, I've been, I talk a lot about dopamine in the book and uh, this idea of having a healthy baseline dopamine so that we're not feeling, I guess, impulsively drawn to those quick fixes. And ever since I've really worked on my dopamine balance, I feel like I live an entirely different lifestyle. I'm, I'm not drawn to my phone. You'll never see me scrolling on social media. I actually find it really boring. I'll jump on and post something and then I'm out of there. And then I'm like, oh crap, I got to respond to people. <laughs> and then like, it'll happen like a week later. And, you know, I'm, I don't, it, it's truly changed my life. You know, the things that I find the most reward or the most comfort in is literally is being in nature is seeing how happy my dog is when she's running around with her friends. Like it's the stupid little things that I just adore. And I wouldn't have noticed them before as much when I was in this higher dopamine sort of indulgence Mm. of technology and sugar and things like that. Oh, I agree. And I feel like we could do a whole nother episode on dopamine. It's just (laughs) so fascinating and something that I think we all need support with but you're right you know when we're on our deathbed hopefully in our 90s when we think back to all the good memories it's not going to be oh my gosh remember those three hours I spent scrolling it'll be like oh my gosh remember when my dog was playing with its friends and this that happened it's all those beautiful things in life that are you know micro moments that are really beautiful too so true it's so so true and they really do add to a life of feeling fulfilled a life of purpose and and that's the greatest thing right having those moments of joy and sitting in them and it's from the simplest things that you can access at any point I think there's a real magic in that Hello, beautiful listeners. I thought I'd put a quick little mention in the middle of this podcast about the Radiance Retreat and what a perfect time to look into it. So tomorrow on the 2nd of January, the Radiance Retreat will be live to the waitlist audience for a massive discount. So the Radiance Retreat is a beautiful one-week retreat in Croatia, June 2024, made for burnt-out women who are exhausted, unsure how to start their wellness journey and not sure where to go next. So if you'd like to join, make sure you sign up in the link in the show notes and let me know on Instagram if you have any other questions, but it's going to be all things breathwork, yoga, manifestation, Reiki, energy healing, ice baths, saunas, luxury villa, and so much more. Now back to the episode. Another chapter. I'm obsessed with the book. It's so much. Ah, oh, thank and, you. Thank you so like much. <laughs> oh, thank you. You know, you spoke about dealing with setbacks and I think this Mm. is a huge one because when people, especially this time of year, you know, December, early January, and this episode's coming out on the 1st of Jan, for people that are like, I'm going to do all these things and then, you know, 10 days in is normally when people fall off the horse. So what's more about setbacks and, you know, how we can deal with them coming into the new year? Oh, such a good question. I remember hearing Brene Brown say a few years ago in one of her talks, it's not if you fall, it's when you fall. And I remember thinking, you don't know me. I'm not going to fall. Like I got this girlfriend, like I'm a high achiever and la la la. No, she was right. And it's not just me. It's, you know, all science shows that 
about 95% of people who set a New Year's resolution are going to fall. It's, And it's not because we're failures. It's not because we're doing it wrong. It's because we're using some of the wrong tools, but also because we're just human beings and life happens. Life will always happen. Life is not linear. Success is not linear. Habit change is not linear. There's going to be ups and downs and it's part of the process. So I think the biggest takeaway from it is it's not if, it's when. And to see it genuinely as part of the process, it's not a hurdle. It's still progress because it, that had to happen for you to go, okay, this is what I'm going to do differently. This is how I'm going to learn from this experience. And I often share the story and I shared this in the book about when we when a child learns to walk, just because they've taken their first step doesn't mean that they're going to now walk flawlessly moving forward. They're still going to have falls and tumbles and we still applaud them for trying. We don't go, oh, stupid kid, like can't walk even though they took the first step. <laughs> but why do we do that with ourselves? Why do we say, oh, I said I'd go and do this and I didn't. I'm such a failure and I'll never achieve this. No, it's part of the process to have those setbacks and to bounce back from them. And the difference between the people who succeed and the people who totally go, you know, fall off the wagon are not if you have setbacks or not, because we all have setbacks. It's actually how quickly it's if you get back up and then how quickly you get back up from your setback. And that's going to take the right mindset and it's going to take the right self-compassion and the right strategies. And some of those are things like Maintain your schedule. You know, if you can't do, say, the hour workout that you planned, do the five minutes that you have time for because you're still initiating the habit. So your brain is still rewiring towards creating that habit. It makes a difference. It's not about the five minutes of exercise. That might not make a huge difference to your health. It's actually about the fact that you still started when you said you'd start because that neural pathway is like, oh, we're firing at this time. I'm going to reinforce and create a synaptic strengthening. And so it's those little things that really help us to get, get back on track quicker and to then stay on track for longer. Absolutely. And I think that will resonate with a lot of listeners, you know, who are clients of mine. You know, when we have our first follow-up, a lot of the time it's, oh, my God, like I didn't do this and I didn't do this. And I go, hey, let's just pause. We'll just start doing some tapping on that as well mm -hmm. and just to kind of bring them back down and say you're human you had a human moment it's completely yeah. fine and handling overwhelm I think in our world is, is a big one for people because again they're thinking about the big picture so for you to just reinforce the fact that you're okay like babies fall over toddlers fall over and we're all just yeah. toddlers like we're never not going to be falling over and learning so I think that's really nice to hear that if you do have a moment that's okay it's not a failure it's just yeah just you being a human being and it's all about how you actually dust yourself off rather than just allowing yourself to wallow I think that's a big one too yeah absolutely and I think self-compassion plays a really huge role in this it's mm -hmm. it's that compassion we would give a friend or a child you know and and we don't give it to ourselves as readily but again the research shows that we make the biggest changes out of a space of self-compassion rather than self-loathing and if we can just truly grasp, like, we, I'm, I'm a human. Um, everyone goes through this. I've had, you know, I've had a little bit more on than usual or a lot more on than usual. 
or I'm having to deal with something emotionally and that's going to be exhausting. So of course, I don't have the same capacity as I hoped I would. Those moments make the biggest difference because you don't then start this negative self-talk of, I don't have what it takes. You know, I'm a failure, which actually self-efficacy or our, the belief in our own ability to achieve something is the number one predictor of success. And not having self-compassion washes our self-efficacy. So it's so important to just be kind to ourselves. Oh, I agree. I couldn't agree more. And I'm always saying that to clients. Like I'm always like, let's put your hand on your heart and then just say, it's okay. Just be really mm. kind to yourself. And when you do have moments, just accept that and change your mindset. And I don't know if this is good or not, but I just say, let's fake it till you make it. You know, let's tell ourselves we can do this because, yeah. you know, I read a little bit of research around it, obviously not as much as you, but, you know, just telling the mind what we want to believe, it will take it that way. It's not going to totally. take it you know, subconscious or whatnot. So I think it's really nice to actually hear it from a science background that we can do that by just telling ourselves, oh, yeah, I can do that. That's fine. Like, no worries. We just had a moment. Let's get back on the horse and give it a go. Oh, I think it's really powerful. I think it's a great exercise to do. And you could even take it a next step further and visualize doing it. Mm -hmm. And that really helps is actually like having a mental practice. It's like a dress rehearsal for the time that you're getting on stage and actually doing it. Visualize every single step, how it feels, how it sounds, what it smells like, whatever it is. Truly go through the emotives of the visualization. It is a game changer when it comes to getting through hurdles and yeah, doing things we feel that are a little bit tough. Yeah. And doing things that are scary as well, just to be able to visualize it going well. I'm like, that's perfect. Yeah. It's all good. Yes. Uh, so I'd love some tips. We're coming into that tricky time of the year. First of January, online world is going crazy with like how to set your habits and do all the things. Mm. I'd love for you to clear some of the noise and just give maybe like two to three tips for people listening of how to actually set yourself up you know, beginning of the year and how to actually succeed. So first thing you want to have is a habit tracker. A mm-hmm. habit tracker is where you write down all the things you want to change and then you tick off every time you've done it. And it sounds really simple, but when you think of giving a child a gold star when they've done their chores and they feel motivated, they feel awesome, we don't grow out of that reward learning. Like they want to do it again and we actually want to do it again. So when we give ourselves a tick, we increase that self-efficacy, we get a little hit of dopamine, it reinforces the habit in our brain, and it also helps us to visually see our progress. So get yourself a habit tracker. There's plenty of apps. There's also like um, analog ones if you're more of a paper person or a diary person. I've got a whole list of the habit tracker apps on my website. So jump on there and have a look at them. The other thing is the brain is only capable of making up to three changes at one time. Whereas I think a lot of people, and I used to certainly do this, is my New Year's resolution was like Santa's Christmas wish list. It was like all the things, all the things. And I thought I could do more than three. I was like, oh, I'm a habit expert. I could totally do this. No, I couldn't. I tried five, didn't work. I tried four, didn't work. Tried three, awesome, totally worked. So up to three things. And actually, if you just focus on one thing at a time, it Research shows that we're much more likely to initiate it, but we're also much more likely to sustain it. And then once that starts to feel normal, add another one and then add another one. But don't start too many things at one time. And then finally, I would say 
make sure it matters to you that it, whatever it is that you're wanting to change, it aligns with your values. You're not doing it because someone else is doing it. Someone on Instagram said it was a good idea or your neighbor's doing it. Who cares about what other people are doing? You know, the, the group of women I've recently worked with, it was about 300 or 350 in this group. And a few of them said to me just recently, I started the program by saying to myself, I wanted to stop eating chocolate. And I realized towards the end of the program, I actually don't need to stop eating chocolate. I just need to change my relationship with chocolate. And I'm actually totally cool with having chocolate. And and when you when our goals don't align with our values, we get cognitive dissonance. It's really hard to totally commit to something because we don't actually like care that much for it. So make sure that whatever it is you're trying to change, it's because you deeply care about it. That's That would be my three hot tips. Oh, they're amazing. Thank you so much. <laughs> and yeah, this has just been such an amazing conversation. The time has flown by. <laughs> and I'd love to hear, you know, where we can find you, the book and, you know, any last pieces of information? Yes. So you can find me uh, at my website, drginacleo.com. I'm also on social. So jump on Instagram, also drginacleo. You can grab my book through my website. It like links to all the places. It's everywhere, right? It's, it's Amazon, Booktopia, QBD, like it's all the places. It's also going to be in all the big department stores, all the airports. So it has been huge, the uptake, and it's also um, available in New Zealand, Australia, the UK and America, and then soon to be in China. So wherever you are in the world, jump online, grab the Habit Revolution. It's also available on Audible. So if you're more an audiobook person, you can grab it on Audible. I read it myself. So you get my lovely voice for the whole book. So, yeah, and I love connecting with people. So please say hello, send me an email or a message, and I'd love to connect with you. Oh, amazing. Thank you so much. And the book is fantastic. You should be so proud of it. Reading it is so fascinating. And I really appreciate you coming on today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been lovely to chat with you, Amelia. Thank you. Mm -hmm.